So I was reading, um, I was reading a bit of Isaiah 44 this week, and um, I was struck, as I am, when you, you read that in certain other passages as well, by just how sarcastic Isaiah is. Have you ever noticed that? He's really sarcastic in Isaiah 44 when he talks about idolatry. Um, you, you might remember the passage. He, he effectively talks about um, how stupid you've got to be to, to, to worship idols. So, for example, he talks about a, like a carpenter who, who takes a tree, okay, a tree that he's planted, and, and he cuts it down, and, and he takes half of the tree and he uses it for firewood to sort of cook his meal on. He, he bakes some bread on it and, and he, he cooks some meat on it. And then, and then I guess he kind of snuggles up to it, you know, all warm and cosy while he finishes off his, his last glass of Beaujolais or whatever it is. And, and then what does he do with the rest of it? Well, Isaiah says he makes it into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And if you know the passage, uh, you, you know Isaiah kind of reflects on the stupidity, really. The stupidity of somebody who doesn't have the understanding or the knowledge to think to himself, hang on a minute, I've just used half that block of wood for firewood. Am, am I now going to bow down and worship the, the same block of wood that I've just eaten my dinner off? You know, am I going to make a false god out of it? As, as he puts it, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And you know, as you... I read that passage again, sort of loaded with sarcasm as it is. You just, you can't help but chuckle to yourself, can you? Because he just, he just exposes the, the stupidity of idolatry. Um, how, this, how this thing that's been fashioned out of a block of wood, the same block of wood that he's just cooked his dinner on, should be the thing to save him. And, and Isaiah's right at that point, isn't he? You've, you've got to be a wally to think like that, haven't you? Um, I, I'm sure most of us you know, are not going to argue with the logic of, of Isaiah there, but what about when the idol isn't made of a block of wood? Okay, what about when the idol that we worship is the financial security package that we've been carefully crafting for ourselves over the years? Um, or, or what about when the idol we worship is the career ambition that we've been secretly cherishing? Or, or what about when it's the retirement lifestyle that we've been working on, or working towards? Would we agree then that it's equally stupid to make those things our idols, to kind of fall down at their feet? Or, or even worse than that, what about when, when the idol is actually called Jesus? But not the Jesus of the Bible, you know, not the Jesus who has made us in his image, but rather the Jesus that we have made up in our image. Not the Jesus who demands that, that he be Lord of our lives, not in any interfering sense, at least. But a Jesus who saves me and then lets me live how I want. Because, friends, all of those things are idols, aren't they? And all of them reflect the world that we live in. Um, if you've been with us as we've We've gone through uh, this letter of, of 1 John. You, you'll remember that John's used the word world, hasn't he, in, in, a, in, a, in a particular way, in common with other parts of the Bible, of course. But he's not using it to talk about the planet that we live on, nor is he using it to talk about kind of the, the whole human race that's made in God's image. He's using the word world here to describe um, sinful humanity in its opposition 
in its, in its rebellion towards God. That's how he's used it, isn't it? Hence, he was able to say in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world, by which he doesn't mean that we shouldn't love the planet or that we shouldn't love people. He, he means that we mustn't love all those, um, all those rebellious human systems and cultures and societies and worldviews and idols that, that we live amongst. That, that reflect and, um, uh, that, sorry, that reject or that ignore uh, or that replace God with, with their thinking, with their ways. Don't love the world, John says in chapter 2, or the things in the world. And, and why not? Well, chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. In other words, our idols reflect the world that we live in. It was true in Isaiah's day when the idols were blocks of wood, but it's true in John's day here and it's true in our day as well. The world, in whatever period of its history it is, loves its idols. And it may be uh, just as stupid now as when the idols were made of wood, but sadly, Christians are not amused, uh, uh, immune from loving idols either because we live in this world that loves them so much, which means that they appeal to our lusts, to our cravings as, uh, as well. But they delude, they blind us so much that we don't even realise, as, as Isaiah put it, that the idol we hold in our hand is just a lie. So, so John here, I think, he's, he's finishing his letter by giving us a choice. Will you give yourself to an idol, a, a false god, and so consign yourself to the way of the world, and, and actually to the end of the world that is coming? Or will you listen to what John has to say here, and so overcome the world? Remember that the, the big concern of this letter is to give his readers confidence in the truth about Jesus in the face of false teaching that's around uh, about him. And as he closes the letter here, I think what he's doing is he's kind of revisiting quite a few of the themes uh, of the letter and, and then sort of bringing them together to, to show us where true confidence is to be found. So here's the first thing I think he wants us to know. Verses 1 to 5. Faith in Christ is the key to victory over the world. Because you see, John knows very well that everyone has faith. It's, it's not that there are people with no faith. Everyone has faith. Everyone places their faith in something or, or in someone. The issue is never about having faith. It's about what you put your faith in. Now, of course, most people today, I guess, don't necessarily realise that. We live in a society, don't we, that's so independent, so self-sufficient, uh, so, so comfortable, uh, at least here in the West. The only time, really, we question what our own personal safety net might be is, is when that rug of self-sufficiency is sort of pulled out from under us. And, and, and maybe when our life is in freefall or our life is in, in crisis, that's often when people start to ask questions about faith, isn't it? But the problem, you see, is not whether we have it or, or even how much of it we've got. The issue is about where our faith is placed. In other words, what the object of our faith is. That's the, that's the fixed point, 
if you like, that gives our faith its, its trustworthiness. In other words, it's a quality issue it, rather than a quantity issue. It's the quality of the object in which you put your faith that will determine whether that faith works or not. Um, I used to do a bit of climbing when I was uh, younger. One of the problems with climbing is that the, you, you use belays, um, sort of anchors in the rock, to protect you as you climb. And sometimes they can be a bit dicey, really, a bit sketchy, a bit ropey. Uh, and so when you've climbed for, for a little while and the only belays that you've found to protect you are looking a bit dodgy, a bit weak, you're very glad when you get to a point where there's a good quality bit of rock or a nice hard bit of ice if you're, if you're doing ice climbing. Something that's bomb-proof. Something that, that, that will actually hold your weight if you, if you take a fall. So, so as you climb, you're, you're exercising your faith in the ability of that anchor to protect you, to hold you. And that's what gives you the confidence to keep going up. Do you see? It's the quality of what you put your faith in that is the important thing. Now, in some, in some quarters today, faith has become its own object. In other words, people have faith in faith, right? Even Christians, it has to be said. So, for example, um, maybe this is true. I was having discussions after the 9.15 where this was true for several people, certainly true for me. I've lost count of the number of people who have struggled with not being healed from a particular illness because some well-meaning but naive person suggested to them that the reason was they didn't have enough faith. Right? Which is a terrible thing to say to someone. It totally misunderstands what the Bible means by faith. Faith is never its own object. We're never called to have faith in faith. And when it becomes its own object, that will always lead to doubt rather than confidence. We'll always be asking, well, how much faith do I need? Or, or why haven't I got enough faith? Which, which defeats the whole purpose. It's like telling the climber to climb with confidence, but not telling him what he's anchored to. Well, John's priority here is to show his readers the only true object of faith, the only true anchor point for our lives. So as we look at these first few verses, one to five, look, notice where he begins and, and ends. So he begins in verse one with the belief that Jesus is the Christ. And then he ends in verse five with the belief that Jesus is the son of God. Do, do you see that? And, and you might remember from chapter two, this is the very thing that these false teachers were denying, isn't it? And he begins with this because he knows that if Jesus isn't God... Well, he can't, be the, he can't be the effector of God's love to us. You know, the one that manifests God's love to us. Chapter 4 has told us that the source of love is God. And if you want to know what God's love looks like, then look at the cross. This is love. Chapter 4, verse 10, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or in this was love, uh, was the love of God made manifest, chapter 4, verse 9, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. But if Jesus is not God, well, it can't be God's love that's on display at the cross, can it? And if Jesus is not God, well, how on earth does eternal life come through him? Do you see, no other quality of anchor will do. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has to be the object of our faith. Nothing less than him will work. 
But then notice that John shows us what this faith means. And here's the first thing, look in in verse 1. When Jesus Christ is the object of your faith, when he is your anchor, then you have been born of God. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, you've been reborn. You've been born again. You're, you're a Christian, in other words. Um, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you're a Christian yet. Um, maybe you're expecting some kind of um, uh, experience or some kind of feeling that will give you assurance that you are. Some, sometimes that happens, uh, but often it doesn't. But what you can know, what you can count on, in fact, is that if you throw yourself, as it were, uh, at the foot of the cross... And you place your trust in the fact that Christ died for you there to take your sin upon himself. Then you will live through him. God will forgive you because of him. And he will bring you into his family. And that is because you will have been born of God. And whether that comes through a Damascus Road type experience or or in a more quiet and less dramatic way is largely irrelevant. What matters is that actually a huge transformation will have taken place in your life. You will have passed from death to life. Your destiny will have changed from hell to heaven. God will have achieved that for you through the work of his son on the cross. I might ask you, do you you want that? Do you want that? Could, Could I suggest to you that you need that? Having Jesus Christ the Son of God, as the object of your faith, means that you are born of God. It means you're a Christian. But also notice that faith makes you love other Christians. End of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's other Christians. Uh, Or or, uh, look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Do do you see the the logic that's going on there? To to love God is to obey God. Faith and love and obedience, they, they go together. And you can't love God without loving the children of God. And you can't love the children of God without loving God and so therefore obeying him. Do you see, love for God and love for God's children, they're so closely linked together that they can't really exist apart from each other. Which, of course, um, I guess highlights the the impossibility, doesn't it, of having a truly Christian life with no reference to the needs of our brothers and sisters in, in Christ. So having faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, means that we will not only love and obey God, but we will love other Christians as well. And it also means, look, verses 4 and 5, that you will be, as it were, an overcomer. Have a look at verse uh, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the ones who believe, but except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, there's, there's victory over the world for the Christian. 
This, this world, with its, you know, with its cultures and societies and structures that reject and ignore and replace God with a thousand and one idols, false gods, instead, will not defeat the genuine Christian. Right? Because genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, makes us overcomers. Do you see? In fact, if you look carefully at, at verses 4 and 5, you'll notice that word overcome or overcomes. It, it's used three times, but it makes two slightly different points. So at the end of verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So, so here the point is that, that through faith in Christ, we're brought into a position of sort of ultimate final victory over the world through, through what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. But he also uses the word in a sort of ongoing sense uh, as well, because although the outcome, of course, is, is settled, the, the conflict isn't over yet. And, and so at the beginning of verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Uh, or, or in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world, the world? Well, it's the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In, in other words, to be born of God... And, and so have faith in Christ as the Son of God not only brings us into a, a position of ultimate victory that, that Christ has won for us, but it enables us to experience that victory in our lives as his disciples now in an ongoing sense. So, so yes, the world encourages us to, to disobey God by following our, our sinful cravings and lusts because the world is, is under the control of the evil one, as verse 19 will, will tell us. But to be born of God means that sin and, and Satan's hold on us is broken forever. And we, have, and we have all of Christ's resources available to us to overcome the world now. And friends, remember too that, that uh, John has told us, chapter 2, 17, uh, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And friends, this, this, is why, um, this is why misplaced faith is such a problem. It, it's why placing your faith, your trust, your dependence in, in any worldly things will ultimately fail you. It's because the world, in its rejection of God, it's passing away. And, and friend, you will pass away with it if it's the world and its lust and its cravings and all the idols that feed them that you are clinging on to. Do, do you see the point? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God where your faith is placed? And so are you an overcomer? It, it's a call to a life of faith, isn't it? Of course, the, the problem is that we often don't exercise faith. We fail to trust him. See, ultimately, all of our, all of our failures, you know, as, as Christians, they're failures of faith, ultimately, aren't they? Failures to trust that God is right. Failures to obey what he says because his promises are true, because his ways are best. When we exercise faith, in him, when we trust him and so do what he says, well, we find that he's right, don't we? And when we live that way, 
The world cannot deceive us with its thinking. That's the way to overcome the world. To live by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So faith in Christ is the key to victory over the world. But have a look now at verses 6 to 12, where John shows us that evidence for Christ is the key to faith in Christ. You see, faith in Christ is never blind faith. That's the point. Remember that John here, he's, he's up against false teachers, isn't he? People who are denying that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's not trying to persuade them to sort of park their brain, take some kind of blind leap of faith. He's dealing here in hard facts. Right, Hard facts about the work of Christ and what it's achieved. And, and you'll see in these verses, he uses sort of courtroom language, doesn't he? So he talks about three kinds of witnesses who testify, but they all say the same thing. Do you see that? Uh, you can see the first two witnesses in verse 6 are water and blood, which seems a bit odd, doesn't it? A bit random. What's that about? Um, but, but if you remember from earlier in the letter, what the false teachers were teaching was that the Son of God came down onto Jesus at his baptism, but then kind of left him before his death. In other words, Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, was their teaching. He was just kind of inhabited by the Son of God for a while. So the water here is, is a reference to his baptism. I think the blood are a reference to his death on the cross. So, so John, who, remember, was a, a, a himself an eyewitness of all of this, is, is stating that Jesus Christ, verse 6, Jesus Christ came by water. Literally, it says he came by means of water or he came through water. And the point seems to be that Jesus was the Christ, he was the Son of God, not just after his baptism, but before it. In other words, he came through his baptism as the Son of God, do you see? And remember, of course, that at his baptism, those who were there, well, they heard the voice of the Father, didn't they? Affirming that this is his beloved Son. But, but not only did he come through his baptism as the Son of God, he came through his death as the Son of God too. He's the one who came by or through water and blood. He, he didn't stop being the Son of God on the cross. He went through death as the Son of God. But you'll notice there's a, um, there's a third <coughs> witness that John calls as well. And the third one is none other than God, the Holy Spirit. Who, of course, uh, personally endorsed Jesus as the Son of God, didn't he? Do you remember John's Gospel? Records, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And, and now here, look, in verse 6, John writes again, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Don't know whether you've ever had to appear as a, uh, a witness in a law court, if you've ever done that. If you have, you generally have to swear an oath, don't you? But who, who do you swear it before? 
you swear it before Almighty God, don't you? And and so if we accept the testimony of people at such times, verse 9, well then what will we do with the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit himself? Because he doesn't have to swear by Almighty God to tell the truth, does he? He is the truth, verse 6. And so surely, verse 9, if we're happy to receive the testimony of men who merely swear by Almighty God to tell the truth, well, we should receive the testimony of God himself, who is greater, verse 9, because he is the truth. Do you see John's point there? Earlier on in the letter, he talks about the fact that he and the other apostles were able to testify to what they personally heard and saw. Right, so, so chapter 4, verse 14, for example, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So the apostles have seen who Jesus is for themselves, and they've testified to it. That's what makes up our New Testaments, isn't it? But, but what John is saying here is that behind the, the apostles' testimony in the Scriptures is the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself. Whom God sent, of course, for that very purpose. John has told us that himself in his gospel, hasn't he? When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, Jesus says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Do do, do you get the point? Behind the testimony of the apostles in the scriptures is the testimony of God himself and this testimony of the spirit along with the evidence of his baptism along with the evidence of his crucifixion they all say the same thing there are three that testify verse 7 and these three agree verse 8 and what is that one testimony on which all three agree verse 11 And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do you see whether it's the testimony of Christ's baptism, uh, the testimony of his crucifixion, whether it's the testimony of the spirit through the apostles in the scriptures Everything points to the fact that eternal life is to be found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do do, do you see the point? Faith in Christ is not blind faith. It's not some vague idea. It's about facts. It's about history. It's about evidence. It's about stuff that you can check out for yourself and become convinced of. And verses 11 and 12 here, they tell us that faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a matter of life and death. So, friends, if the stakes are that high, it's got to be worth a look, hasn't it? If you haven't checked that out for yourself yet, why not? Come and have a chat. So faith in Christ is the key to victory over the world and evidence for Christ is the key to faith in Christ. But then look, finally, verses 13 to 
21. Confidence in Christ is the key to living for Christ. And and you might have noticed John's done the same thing in in the verses above as he's done all the way through the letter, really, which is to give his readers a a belief test, right? Like a doctrine test on, on what they believe about Jesus, as well as a moral test. Are you obeying Jesus? And, and, and as well as a love test, do you love him and his people? And, and the reason for that, of course, is, is that, that here, just like right through the letter, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In, in other words, he's getting them to check who they have faith in, who they love, who they obey, because he wants them to have confidence as Christians. He wants them to know for sure that they have eternal life, that they're God's children. And he wants them to know that because having confidence that we're Christians leads to confidence in how we live as Christians. Um, So, for example, verses 14 to 17, it leads to confidence in prayer. Have a look at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So so that that doesn't mean, John doesn't mean here that we should have confidence that we can ask God for anything and everything we might want. Right? No, we should have no confidence that God will hear and answer a prayer like that. But rather, verse 14 says, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears it. So so the expectation here is that because we're his children, we're committed to what he is doing in the world. Right? His mission in the world, that of his family, the church. And that our prayers will reflect that. So, So not... Not simply sort of, you know, selfish prayers that, that might have a lot more to do with what chapter, call, chapter 2 called all that is in the world. You know, the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, pride in possessions. No, prayers like that show that we may have very little concern for God's work in the world being done. So we should have no confidence at all that God will hear prayers like that. But when his children, through his word... Get to know what God's will is, his, his gospel-shaped plans and purposes for, for his world. Well, then we find ourselves praying more and more for those things that he is passionate about. And, and we'll find that he responds to those prayers by hearing and answering them. And we can be confident that he will because it's what he wants too. Friends, I think it's a real reminder to us, isn't it, to, to think through the things that we pray for. And, 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 and asking ourselves, are we praying for the right things? Are we praying for that which God desires? Or that which God has promised in his word to give us? Are we praying in line with the revealed will of his word? And if we are, well, we can be confident that he will hear and answer us because it's what his will is too. Which means, I think, when we're not sure, well, we pray as Jesus taught us, don't we? Your will be done on earth and, and in me and, and in my life as it is in heaven. And when we pray like that, 
Well, we can also have confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers as we've asked, in accordance with his will. I I really think if there's a secret to confidence in prayer, it's that, isn't it? It, it, It's about finding out from God's word what he's doing in the world, what what his uh, 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 revealed will is for his world, and then asking him to accomplish that will. And, and to, to, to accomplish it in, in my life as well. And, and that confidence in prayer it extends to us praying for believers who sin as well. That's what verses 16 and 17 uh, are talking about. So God's will for us as, as Christians is that we should be holy. And, and so his will is that we should repent of our sin when we do sin. And, and, and so have life in Christ. So so therefore, to pray in accordance with God's will for a Christian who has fallen is to pray for them to be restored again. Now, you'll you'll notice that John also talks there about a sin that leads to death, which is probably a reference to what's called apostasy. In other words, confessing that you have faith in Christ, but then actively turning away from him, which is what the false teachers have done, really, back in chapter 2. And their turning away showed that they were never really Christians in the first place, as, as chapter 2, verse 19 makes, makes clear. So, so his point is that even though the sin of unbelievers, you know, those who've turned their backs on Christ, leads to death, so, so we should have no confidence that, that God will forgive and, and restore such people, it, it's evident when real believers sin, uh, or it's different rather, when real believers sin, the sin of believers is sin that doesn't lead to death because Christ has died to bring us forgiveness. So pray for believers who fall. Pray for them. Pray that God will forgive them and restore them because of Christ. And have confidence that he will answer that prayer because he always restores those who have saving faith in Christ. That's his revealed will for them. So whilst we can't have that confidence that God will do that for those with no saving faith, we don't know whether he will or he won't. We can have that confidence for fellow believers. And friends, often, I think, sadly, our reaction to a fellow Christian who falls, it it might be to gossip about them. It might be to write them off. But the reminder here is to pray. Pray that God would forgive and restore them. And if they're genuine Christians, well, we can have confidence that he will do that. Because Christ has died to forgive and restore his people. So having confidence that we're Christians leads to confidence in how we live as Christians. Confidence in prayer and confidence too about the future. Notice in verse 18... That Christians know, they they have confidence that God will keep them. Um, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God uh, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Do you see, again, those who are uh, are genuine Christians, so so not those who show themselves to be unbelievers by by turning away from Christ, like the false teachers, but those who are genuinely born of God, so don't uh, go on sinning, you know, like like they did before they were Christians. 
that they can know, they can have confidence that God will protect them such that the evil one doesn't touch him or, or more literally it says uh, fasten on to him. In other words, the devil, we know this, don't we? The devil can and will have a go at God's people, but God keeps his children from Satan's grip, right? He won't give us up to him. Even though the whole world lies in the, in the power of the evil one, verse 19, we can have confidence that we are from God, verse 19, so he will keep us from the evil one. So friends, John, John here, this, this, this final chapter, he's, he's made the case, hasn't he, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only true object of faith. Right, he's the only anchor point that can bear the weight of our lives now and for eternity. He's taught us that faith in Christ is the key to victory over the world. He's shown us that evidence for Christ is the key to faith in Christ. It's not blind faith, but it's faith based on hard facts. And he's doing this so that we can have confidence in Christ, confidence in the truth about him, confidence that he answers our prayers, confidence that we have a glorious and eternal future with him because that's what he wants for us. So friend, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Because a block of wood can't give you all that. And financial security won't give you all that. And health and beauty can't give that to you. And your career can't give it to you. And a false Jesus that society has made up in its own image can't give that to you. Nothing but the Jesus of the Bible can do it. This is the testimony. Verse 11. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of us here this morning will have life. That, that we will all be those who see our lives in the light of eternity. Um, Pray that we be those who receive life through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Father, for those who, who have that already, who have the Son and so have life, I pray that we would know it for sure. And, and so live our lives in confidence until that day when we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. And we pray in his name. Amen.